This is an ABC podcast. In a world first, Facebook pays 52 million American dollars to content moderators who've been traumatised by sifting through distressing social media material. What are the laws when a business can't afford to pay redundancies to laid off workers? And where there's a will, there's a way. I think with the pandemic, people have, I think, paused and realised that they are not immortal and they really need to get their affairs in order in case something does happen to them. To get your affairs in order, you need witnesses to your will. Not so easy in this age of physical distancing. I'm Damien Carrick. Welcome to The Law Report. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, various Australian jurisdictions have relaxed strict rules around witnessing documents like wills. Last week, Victoria was the latest jurisdiction to adopt these emergency measures. Melbourne lawyer Cathy Wilson, an accredited specialist in wills and estates, says up until now, witnessing wills required everyone to be in the same room. Yeah, so in Victoria, two people have to witness the principal sign a will in order to be formally valid. That requirement is the the same around the states. The rules have just changed in Victoria, and I believe they've also been changed, I think, in Queensland and New South Wales. But up until now, what have you and other lawyers been doing to work around people who are self-isolating or, or, or the safe distancing rules? Tell me about some of the, the, the things that you've been doing. Well, we've, we've had to think uh, outside the square about how to go around uh, getting documents witnessed. So I've met people and signed documents through car windows. We would regularly meet people in uh, our car park and just hand the document to them through the window after having gone through it with them over the phone and sending them a draft and verifying it then we would just witness it through the car window and let them drive away. Um, I've sent documents to clients' uh, wills and asked them to have their neighbours witness them over the back fence uh, or where they're having people visit their homes that are lawfully able to visit their homes that they witness the wills at that time. Different states have passed legislation that, that uh, allows for the relaxation of these rules. I think uh, Queensland and New South Wales did so a few weeks ago. And, and just last week, Victoria's new laws came online. What is now allowed in those three jurisdictions when it comes to witnessing of a will? In Victoria, the regulations allow us to virtually, uh, by audio-visual link, observe the uh, the will maker sign the will and we can have two witnesses in my office, as I did just this morning with somebody who I dealt with by Skype. I had sent the documents to her in advance and we had approved them. So we had an audio-visual conference. Um, I had sent to this client a draft of the will and had verified it with her. She's an elderly woman and not able to leave home. She's self-isolating and um, she's in a semi-rural location so her neighbours are not close by and she doesn't have people visiting in the same way. She's very competent and capable and her children, she's a, a widow and her children are interstate so she doesn't have family around that can witness documents either. So in anticipation of regulations coming into place, 
I sent the documents to her. Uh, one of the other lawyers in my office witnessed it, her read it, acknowledged that that was the document, and she signed it. And then she sent it back to us. She took a photo on her phone and sent it back to us, uh, which is as required under the rules. And then we witnessed it and then we sent it back to her and she certified on the foot of the document that it was the same document that she had signed. So this was all done sort of electronically, sort of emailing back and forwards, essentially. Yes, yes, it, it did. And it took a bit longer than I anticipated, I must must say. As a precaution or just for the record, do you try to record the video conversation that you're having with your client? I haven't done that on this occasion because these regulations just came into force last week. It's a matter of um, trialling them and seeing how they go. I know this particular client and I was confident enough from our discussions and our exchanges in the lead up to her witnessing the will. I was confident that she knew what she was doing. She she was doing it freely and voluntarily. And so I and the other lawyer in my office were very happy to witness the document in those circumstances. In other circumstances where there might be something particularly unusual being done in the will, for example, if there's a departure from previous wills, I would look to implement further measures so that we, if called upon, we can demonstrate that the person was comfortable in what they were doing. I'm wondering with remote signing and with remote witnessing, you have no idea who's behind the camera or in the next room or sitting to the side, it does open up potentially a Pandora's box about um, agency uh, uh, and if not, and potentially sometimes capacity as well. Uh, Yes, it it certainly does. And one of the problems with wills, of course, is these things are only called into question after the person dies. So you can't get their evidence about it. Practitioners have that responsibility to be particularly careful uh, to uh, ensure that the person is freely and voluntarily signing the document. That requirement remains irrespective of any changes in uh, video conferencing and so forth. You still have to be satisfied the person has capacity and that they are making the document freely and voluntarily. These new rules, I mean, I'm wondering, even though we're relaxing the the physical distancing rules, in some ways older Australians will have to be even more vigilant about self-isolating because we're, as a society, getting back to normal a little bit and that's going to lead to, inevitably, some breakouts of the COVID-19. So it's not like you'll be invited into people's homes and they'll want to come into your office. This video conferencing way of witnessing wills will really stay with us for a while, I would imagine. Well, in Victoria, the uh, legislation that has been introduced has a sunset period of six months. So there is a time limit on it. And I'm very pleased about that. I think the government has been very cautious about the way they've approached it, certainly in Victoria. Ordinarily, it's, it's really not that hard to get people to witness wills, I think, and they need the added protection. In fact, my own view is that laws around witnessing wills should be enhanced and tightened, particularly because there is evidence of increased elder abuse in the community, financial abuse as well as personal abuse. So I would prefer to see the rules tightened up. And very briefly, what 
tightening would you like to see in a post-COVID world? I'd like to see one witness being qualified, either a lawyer or a doctor or somebody of similar experience. And the reason for that is, as I mentioned earlier, often a will is only reviewed or scrutinised after the person passes away. So you don't have any ability to ask them you don't have any other ability to test the veracity of the process. So yeah, lawyers know uh, and are well trained in understanding uh, capacity issues and are alive to the possibility of exploitation. Uh, doctors similarly are very good at assessing a person's competence. They often know them for long periods. They're, they're family practitioners, so they are alert to anything unusual happening. You know, their patients will often confide in them about um, abuse or dem or show signs of abuse or exploitation or changes in their circumstances. I hear what you're saying, but I'm wondering if listeners will say, ah, the lawyers just want more work. How would you respond to that? Uh, I can understand people thinking that, uh, being concerned about that. I'll say a couple of things about it. One is the cost afterwards of dealing with it is much greater. It's much, much better to get it sorted out beforehand. And the second thing is it's not actually a terribly expensive process. When you think about things like paying your car insurance, repairing your car, really on balance when you're dealing with the whole of your estate and your wishes and you're not around to see them or implement them, them. I think it's a small price to pay. That's my own view about it. And as I say, similarly, if doctors could witness them as well, that's not an expensive process. Most of the work in, in preparing wills is in taking the instructions, verifying assets, checking superannuation entitlements, whether you can deal with them in your will or not. That's where all the work is done. The actual witnessing of the will is a small part of the process so I don't think it's going to it would add much cost and uh, and weighing it against the benefit I think it's worthwhile. Melbourne lawyer Cathy Wilson an accredited specialist in wills and estates. As we all know the economy is in dire straits unemployment numbers are climbing sharply the government's JobKeeper package is subsidising employment, but it can't stop a tidal wave of redundancies. And we are beginning to see COVID-19-related disputes hitting our courts. Some of these centre around redundancy payouts, which you might think are entitlements carved in industrial stone, but it turns out they can be altered. Michael Burns is an employment law expert with Swab Lawyers in Sydney. Damien, they are generally set in stone. The Fair Work Act has a scale based on service that determines the number of weeks an employee is entitled to, number of weeks pay, they're entitled to circumstances of redundancy. So that's the benchmark, and that's what the vast majority of employees receive. There is, however, in the Fair Work Act, a capacity for employers to approach the Fair Work Commission and seek a reduction. And one of the grounds upon which the Fair Work Commission can order a reduction in redundancy pay is if the employer has an incapacity to pay the usual redundancy amount set out in the Fair Work Act. Let's talk about two recent decisions which uh, looked at this issue of whether or not an employer could reduce what would have been the entitlement of an employee. Tell me about the decision of Mason Architectural Joinery. 
Yes, so we had an employer been with the business uh, for a number of years, about three years, and this business made this employer redundant. They had no revenue, pretty much no revenue for two months. They were suffering great financial strain. They lost work due to the pandemic. They'd taken other, other means to reduce costs in the business, but they submitted that they weren't able to make the redundancy payment. Here, the employee had actually been able to find alternative work pretty quickly and actually, uh, fortuitously, at a high rate of pay. So he's out of he's work. He's damn lucky. He's, he's doing well. He is indeed, particularly in this environment, and good for him. He was able to secure alternative work at a high rate of pay and the period of notice covered the period that he was uh, unemployed. And so taking all of that into account, the Fair Work Commission decided to reduce the amount of redundancy pay uh, from seven weeks to one week's pay, having regard to the dire financial circumstance of the business, the efforts they had taken to cut costs, and also the fact the employee had been able to secure uh, alternative employment and good alternative employment within a few days. So is it about balancing the needs of the employer with the needs of the employees? Is it about who can bear the loss in what would otherwise be a, a pretty concrete entitlement? It, it is, Damien. It, certainly the onus is on the employer. If, if they are to make good the proposition that the usual quantum of redundancy pay is to be reduced, they need to show that they are in dire financial circumstances and it warrants the Commission's intervention and in making an order for reduction of that pay. Well, interestingly, though, there was another decision, I think, handed down on the same day, Worthington Industries. And, and Worthington Industries are a, a US-based metal manufacturing company that makes things like metal tanks, cylinders, pipes. There was a dispute between, uh, I think, three employees and this company, again, around redundancies. Tell me the details. Three employees. The company wanted to reduce the redundancy payable to those employees from the four weeks, which is set out in the Act, to one week each. In that instance, the company wanted to keep them on as as casuals, possibly, um, at some point in the future, but, but they had a very steep decline in their financial performance and so made them redundant and made this application to the Fair Work Commission for the reduced redundancy pay. In this particular decision, Damien, the JobKeeper scheme had a role to play. So the member of the Fair Work Commission, Deputy President Clancy, noted that the employer would very likely be eligible for JobKeeper assistance because they had over a 30% reduction in their uh, turnover or looked like they were going to have a 30% reduction in turnover and the business was had a turnover of less than a billion dollars. And so the, the deputy uh, president suggested to the business that they might want to rehire these employees, which in ordinary times is very un unorthodox, very unconventional to have an employee made redundant and then you rehire them soon after. But these are, of course, very different times. And one of the stated rationales for JobKeeper is to bring back employees who were made redundant in the wake of the early stages of the pandemic crisis. And so the deputy president suggested that to the business. The business did consider it, but rejected it, indicating that they really wanted certainty in the situation. They didn't want to rehire these employees in circumstances where they didn't really know whether they could keep them on. Uh, so they decided to reject the, the suggestion made by the deputy president. 
And so then the, the Deputy President looked at the financial position of the company and the Deputy President determined that whilst the position of the company didn't look good, it, it looked rather dire, that they were accepted that they were in real trouble and, and were going to run deficits and had problems with cash flow, etc. They did have the money in the bank to make the redundancy payments at the full level, which is four weeks per employee rather than the one week they were seeking, and so decided not to reduce the redundancy pay that the employer needed to make. So it remained at four weeks per employee rather than one week per employee. So, Michael Burns, what do you see as the take-home messages of these two decisions when taken together? One thing is, if an employer wants to make an application to the Fair Work Commission to reduce redundancy pay, they need to be in a position to show that they are in, in a very difficult uh, in very difficult financial circumstances, that they've suffered a significant loss in turnover, in revenue, in profit, that their cash flow situation is problematic. Um, they, they also need in the present environment, I think, to have turned their mind to whether one, they are eligible for the JobKeeper scheme, and secondly, whether or not it might be more appropriate to seek JobKeeper assistance rather than making the employees redundant. Now, I don't think the Fair Work Commission would actually say that, that an employer should seek JobKeeper rather than make an employee redundant. That's not the sort of intervention the Fair Work Commission would likely make. But if an employer, having made an employee redundant, is then going to approach the Fair Work Commission and say, we want a reduction in the usual redundancy amount payable to that employee, they can expect the Fair Work Commission to say, well, before you made the employee redundant, did you consider JobKeeper assistance? Could your financial position, which you're now relying upon to make lower payments to these employees, could that position have been improved uh, or could your problems have been mitigated if you had turned your mind to the JobKeeper scheme, considered it and maybe applied for it? So employers, I think, need to, uh, to expect that they'll be asked that question and need to have a, a cogent answer. Michael Burns, employment law expert with Swab Lawyers in Sydney. I'm Damien Carrick and this is The Law Report, your weekly fix of law and justice here on Radio National or available anytime as a podcast. When I started, I was actually just looking at pornography all day, naked ladies. And then the next shot is an ISIS terrorist execution or a mass killing or... Yeah, just that kind of general, you know, really evil nastiness. Also a lot of racism, a lot of just peddling hatred. Dublin-based Chris Gray speaking to me earlier this year. He's the lead plaintiff in litigation commenced in the Irish courts against Facebook. Chris, who worked as a content moderator, is suing the social media giant for the trauma caused by his daily exposure to distressing material. Well, last week on the other side of the Atlantic, Facebook agreed to pay 52 million American dollars as a settlement for a similar class action brought by US-based content moderators. Daniel Sharris, partner with Burns Sharris, is one of the lawyers representing the traumatised workers. Each one has their individual story, obviously. They are people who are taking 
jobs that, frankly, a lot of people don't want. The pay is not great. The job itself is not pleasant. Now, now one of them was Erin Elder. I've been reading that she was exposed to things like uh, suicide, murder, child abuse, and uh, at one point she viewed the, the pack rape of, of a young woman in a field, and then she approached her supervisor for assistance, and, and the supervisor didn't get back to her for a week, and then she was told she could see a counsellor, but just once a quarter, you know, four times a year. I mean, it sounds like uh, they weren't receiving the assistance that they needed in order to do the job safely. Was that the, is that the essential cause of action here? It, it really is. That was certainly the, the impetus behind the cause of action. The lawsuit itself was set up to provide medical monitoring and to provide effectively medical assistance for the folks that, that were suffering the effects, as you, as, as you described. And the settlement hit that mark, but it also achieved promises from Facebook that they will have to comply with for court order, ultimately, to get their vendors to provide not only the safeguards for mental health, like, for example, access to counselors and therapy sessions and, and whatnot from licensed professionals, but also tooling enhancements for the to sort of affect the experience in real time for the for the content moderators so just simple things like going from color to black and white or making certain parts of the screen come out of focus the science suggests and the the, the experts we worked with expressed that if you make the input into the brain fundamentally less direct and less impactful, then the harm can be lessened through those practices. The, the lawsuit and ultimately the settlement, it achieves an ability to have folks get tested, get treated for these effects of having worked there, but also with Facebook's cooperation and agreement to do so, sets up a, a safer work environment for the folks going forward in the US anyway. I've seen these you know, content moderation workplaces described as the digital sweatshops of the 21st century. They're doing work which we all benefit from because we all want to use social media and we wouldn't go there if we didn't feel safe and we didn't feel safe for our children to go there. But these people are paid very little money to do very stressful work and the conditions are not great. Those are, those are certainly accurate descriptions of the workplace conditions. The things that we focused on through the settlement and Facebook is implementing the progress even, even now are the access to care and the protections for the interface. But from our perspective, the idea was to try and make like wearing a hard hat in a, in a, in a, in a construction site, make the work safer for the worker. And that's, I mean, that's the analogy. It's interesting because uh, most moderator work is done by companies who have contracts with Facebook. So most of the people in this class are not direct employees of Facebook, are they? That's correct. That's exactly right. But nevertheless, Facebook has been prepared to fork out 52 million American dollars to compensate those people. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, at the end of the day, that's a recognition, I think, um, this is not Facebook saying it, but that's my observation, that everyone understands that the work is being done for Facebook. And I also think it's a recognition that it could have been dealt with better. And 
I think they want to come to a better solution. I think Facebook wants to make a better place for the people that are doing this work. How many workers and former workers do you think fall into the class ultimately? Right. The metrics I have are more than 10,000 and the estimate is roughly 11,500 in that in that range. And under this settlement, Facebook does not admit or deny harms caused to these workers. And as I understand, as a result of the case or the settlement, every content moderator who's worked for Facebook since 2015 will receive receive at least $1,000. And in addition, any worker who's had a diagnosis of PTSD from work, work work-related PTSD, is eligible to receive up to $50,000 in damages. That's correct. There's a step in the middle between the the 1000 and the damages award, uh, and it goes like this. The initial $1,000 payment is designed to more than pay for the cost of a screening so that a content moderator can go to a mental health professional and get a screening for, a, you know, and get a diagnosis for PTSD or depression or whichever of what we call the qualifying diagnoses. If that person gets a diagnosis and then submits proof of the diagnosis to the administrator, they're entitled to another award that is designed to pay for the cost of the treatment. And so so that that can range between, remembering here, between maybe $2,500 and $7,500 in that range, something like that. So that's step two. Step three is then, if you have a diagnosis, you have a right to submit a claim for damages, and that claim... You describe how you've been impacted in a narrative. You can talk about losses if I lost a job or, you know, medical payments in the past. Those claims are all submitted and then ranked in tiers again. Uh, The upper tier amount is capped at $50,000. That's the full process, ultimately. You know, and then a substantial amount for for lawyers' fees, of course. But but will that be enough of a pool of money to adequately compensate all those people, if there are up to 10,000, obviously not all of them have suffered PTSD. Our, our models, based on the what we, the prevalence rates and, and, and the expected return rates from um, this type of action, our models are showing us that, yeah, there will be enough to both diagnose and treat the people that we expect, even on, on the higher end of prevalence uh, to, to come back with a diagnosis and still have uh, enough for some money in on the other damages payment if necessary. And then if, you know, in some th- under some theories, the prevalence rates are far lower. Um, if that's the case, then the other damages award goes up. And, and the answer is yes. Our models show that anything short of, I think it's 85 or something percent Uh, Well, there's enough to to pay for the full budgeted amount, according to our experts. There is also litigation in Europe. Earlier this year, I spoke to the lead plaintiff, uh, Chris Gray, who's a Dublin, Ireland resident. I also spoke to his lawyers there. Your settlement is a world first. Do you imagine that Facebook will will settle that European litigation uh, as a concept? Because it settled yours, so presumably the same sorts of issues apply uh, across the ditch. So I, I, I don't disagree that the same sort of issues apply. Uh, I don't know what the what the legal systems outside the United States, what their ability is to exert pressure on Facebook to drive them to a settlement. Or rather, if Facebook wants to take a, you know, a sort of more socially 
morally driven decision of not being pushed to a settlement by a, a lawsuit. That's its decision, obviously. So the, the, the easy answer is one settlement does not make another case win or lose. That's for sure. But I also think that if, as Facebook is rolling out the, for example, the workplace enhancements in the United States, that tooling, once the technology behind it becomes more easily disseminated, there's no real reason why that couldn't be rolled out worldwide. Daniel Sharris, partner with Burns Sharris in Dallas, Texas. Thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. That's The Law Report. Thanks to producer Anita Barrow and to sound engineer Christina Miltiadu. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.